going here. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna throw some more wood on it. Is anybody all right with that? I'll be the one who's I'll, I'll be the one blowing up vocally and burning up. So I was talking to Greg beforehand and thinking, wow, this is this is a great imagery because uh, I heard a speaker, a good friend of mine, was giving a talk and he was talking about when he was a Boy Scout when he's in Boy Scout camp. They learned how to make fire. That's every kid's dream: how to make fire. And uh, you don't just light a piece of wood and just let it burn. You have to start small, get some kindling going, and then to get a, then you have to add wood to it. You know, here in, in time. So I'm either going to kill this royally or I'll get it going. But the whole idea is, you know, you, you add some small things and the, then they start burning, and then the, the bigger stuff starts. And I think of our, our lives and who we are as, as Christ followers. And that uh, if, if we each had our own little fires, how, how small and insignificant they are, but when we join up, how we can build each other up. Like, for me to kill this fire, I should just move it all apart, right? That's how you get rid of it. But the more wood I put on, just enough wood. I think that'll be enough. We'll see. What does a fire need to uh, continue to burn? Oxygen. Fuel. The Hebrew word for air or oxygen would be ruach. The word for Holy Spirit is Ruach Hokadesh or Holy Wind. Just think of our lives right here. You know, the Spirit of God blowing on us, kindling our flames, bringing us closer. It's a good imagery. You can't, you can't, you can't uh, skip that when there's a, a fire. So I'll, before I get into our talk, I want to introduce you to some people that you may know. Um, their name is Bob and Helen Parr. Does anybody know Bob and Helen Parr? Nobody? I'll, let me tell you more. Someone's known. So Bob and Helen Parr. Bob's, you know, mid-40s, an insurance agent. And uh, he's, he's put on a little pounds. He's getting a little, a little round around the edges. Helen, she's still in pretty good shape. They've got three kids. And uh, Bob works his insurance job, but that's not his passion in life. His passion in life is his real identity. Are you ready for this? Bob's real identity is Mr. Incredible. He's married to Helen, the Elastigirl. They have three kids, uh, Violet, Dash, and uh, um, Jack-Jack. There you go, Jack-Jack. I need Jack-Jack to keep that thing going. Well, there's this great part in the movie of The Incredibles where, where uh, Bob is, is like, uh, he's, he's, he's moonlighting at night being his superhero self. And the underlying story of The Incredibles is that they can't be their superpower self anymore. And so he has this messed up little um, costume that he has. It's all getting stretched out and beat up because he's wearing it. And so he goes, sees, he goes to see Edna. Now, Edna is the superhero seamstress of days of old, and she's all a four-foot, that Jewish um, garment district, you know, spidey power, and she invites him in, and they're, 
And he's sharing all of his plans and ideas of his new superhero outfit that he wants. And Enda says these words over and over, no cape, no cape. And then she goes and, you know, talks about the different superheroes who got sucked up in a turbine or got shot off in a rocket because their cape was stuck to it. And all this other Hebrew, I think he got rolled over by a cement roller. And there's all these pictures. And you can just see Bob's dreams just crashing. Like, no, I want a cape, please. No cape, no cape. He just has to be an ordinary Bob, Mr. Incredible at night. I think Bob, his story, Mr. Incredible, in, in some ways is our story in that we all are incredible. But we, we don't need capes. No capes, all right? We don't, be, we don't need to be running around with capes flying out and like we're super Christians here to save the day. The beauty of it is God just wants the ordinary. And please let me know if the stage starts on fire. God just wants to use you where you are, where you are. You are God's superhero. No capes. But we all should just have little t-shirts that we can just unbutton, you know, or button our shirts and there, there's our little t-shirt that says, we're awesome, we're God's child. Because that's our true identity to get back to our first, our first talk. We're God's child. We don't need to have superhero powers to save this world. But when it comes to this world, there is, uh, I guess I missed up on those pictures. There's a picture I have called, a book called The Nun Zone. And this was a, a book that was written uh, after uh, the 2000 census. And so all these sociologists, they got this uh, grant and they were able to study different areas of the country. And the Pacific Northwest got, the, got labeled as The Nun Zone. That's a nice picture. I'm still working on my technology, my JPEG. But none is N-O-N-E, that there is um, more people when the census came in 2000 checked the no spiritual affiliation than any other part in the country. This is the 2000 census. So the Pacific Northwest has this history of this frontiers man and woman coming out here from the Oregon Trail, do it yourself, I'm going to conquer this land before I go and conquer the, the Alaska bush for the gold rush. I mean, that's part of our, our history in this area. It's logging, mining, now technology. It's just, I'm creating, I'm an entrepreneur. I mean, Seattle is the number one city for creative people. You can YouTube and watch these great videos that Amazon and Microsoft puts out that's drawing people. So we got the, this title of the nun zone, and I, I'm sad to say, sort of, We've lost that title. So, you know, fast forward to 2010, the last census. We lost the title to the northeast part of the country. Not because we also got more religious. They just checked more nun boxes than we did this time. Oh, thanks. There's a few more pictures I'll have. Yeah, great. We'll go back to that one. So the... Northeast took off, took our label. And so I, I share that with you um, because it, there is a trend there. There's a trend in, in our country. And there's another gentleman, David Olson, who wrote this book, The State of the American Church. And he did this study from uh, 1990 to 2010. 
and just studied, you know, our population growth as a country. So our population as America, as a country, was 249.6 million people. I don't know who the point six is, but there is 249 million people in the United States in 1990. So fast forward to 2010, there's 309 million people in this country. So you, that's, a, that's a nice line that goes up, right? So in 20 years, we went up by 62 million people. 62 million people have come to the United States and call it their home in 20 years. Now, he did this same study on, on the Christian church and from the same timeline. And so if the population of this country rose by 62 million people, the population of, this, of, of people who go to church, unfortunately, it, it went down. In 1990, there were 60 million people who went to claim they would go to church. And in 2010, it was 51 and a half million. So it dropped by 10 million people. And our population rose by 60. It's a net loss of, you know, you could say 62 million people. That's a, that's a large, significant number of people. In some ways, that's a whole generation of people who are 20 years old and younger. They're part of that number. That's a large number of people. Then there's Barna, George Barna in his poll, where he studied the state of the church. And like right now, his state of the church, when he has his numbers and he crunches them in his magical, numeric way, that he came up with this number. And, and there's two numbers here you've got to pay attention to. When they broadly asked our culture in, the America, in America if they're Christian or not, 73% say they're Christian. That's pretty, pretty in, uh, exciting in some ways, right? So 73% of the people they polled claimed to have Christianity as their religion. But when he pushed further and, and asked, how do you practice that? Even just practicing it once a month in a worship gathering, the number drops to... 31%. So 71% say they're Christian. It's kind of like we're this Christian nation type of answer. But those who actually practice it, boom, drops down to 31%. So I, I tell you these, these, uh, these numbers because I think it's a trend that's happening. And it's happening in, in Seattle. We're the forefront of it. It's happening in the Midwest, in the Bible Belt. Less and less people find Christianity and church of value. And I think what we need to do as believers as we gather is, is look at this, and we can look at it in two ways. Either it's a big, big problem, or it's a big, big opportunity. I look at it as it's a big, big opportunity for us all to be superheroes for the faith. So there was this guy, um, he came to Jesus in Luke 10, verse 25. On this occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? This expert in the law answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, 
and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other, other, the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when, he re- when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? And the expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. We have a big, big opportunity to go and do likewise. The what? What is going on here? This expert in the law, this religious smarty pants, comes up to Jesus and says, tell me, what's the secret way into heaven? Jesus goes, I, you know, you tell me. What does is, what is the word of God say? And this smarty pants, he knows the book, and he gives the best answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. See, in the time of Jesus, there was this huge rabbinical argument of what it means to have eternal life and how to do it. And much in our culture where there's left and there's right and there's red and blue, there's kind of this same idea in the, in the rabbis. And some would argue that to love your, what it means to love God. And they would point to this passage in Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. Shema is Hebrew for hear. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Akkad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And impress these on your heart and teach them to your children, the passage, go, the passage goes on. Bind them on your hands, put them on your forehead, write them on your doorpost. Talk about them with your kids whenever you walk, sit, lay down. Basically, whatever you do, have this before your children. And so and the passage goes on in Deuteronomy. It says, when you go into the land where buildings are built that you did not build, wells that are dug that you did not dig, and vineyards that are planted that you did not plant, do not forget the Lord your God. So this man, this religious man, he has it right. Don't forget God. When you go into places that, are, that God has brought you, don't forget him. And in this greater argument of money rabbis, it was that part, but then also They tied in it with Leviticus 19, the whole part of love your neighbor as yourself. 
And this is where the conversation really took some different sides. Who is your neighbor? Who is your neighbor? For some religious people, it was only the purebred Jewish person. That was their neighbor. The ones who believed and behaved just like them. That's your neighbor. In this passage, it talks about the priest and the Levite. And often when I grew up and I heard this story, I was like, oh, those nasty priests, those awful Levites. But you know what? They are doing exactly what they're supposed to do as followers of God in the temple. The man who was beaten and robbed was unclean in the Jewish law. They could not touch him and still be fulfilling their role in the temple. So for the Jewish mind, when, they, when Jesus is telling this story, they're like, oh, we get that. So that's no problem that they, they, they walked on by. But this is where Jesus just wound up and threw the curveball right at him. It's the Samaritan. It's the Samaritan that comes and saves the day. And that's where we have our good Samaritan laws. And who is the Samaritan? Samaritans are these leftover half-breed Jews that didn't get picked up when the Babylonians came and ripped all the Jews into captivity. So you have to go back to the Old Testament. The northern nation of Israel was already wiped out by Assyria, and now there's just left in the split kingdom is Judah. And Judah is this nation. They're, they're, they're following idols. They're no longer following the temple and, and believing and following God who brought them out of Egypt. They forgot. They forgot. You should hear the echo of, of Deuteronomy. They're not living Shema anymore. They have forgotten who they are. So God sends them into exile. So the Babylonians come. And then there's this smattering of Jews who intermarry, who are pagan worshiping, and they're left behind, and they're the Samaritans. So no good Jew would want to spend time with a Samaritan. There's other stories where Jesus is at a woman in a, at a well. She's in a Samaritan. And Jesus throws this curveball because he's saying, who is your neighbor? It's everybody. It's everybody. The Samaritan the one that you despise, he is your neighbor. He's the one you are to love. He's the one that you are to love. So much so when the, when the story ends and Jesus asked him, which of these three do you think was your neighbor? He couldn't even, the, 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 the expert in the law could not even answer the question. He couldn't say the Samaritan. But Jesus knew it. He says, just go. Go and do likewise. So for us, we need to go and do likewise. We need to go and do likewise. We need to be like the Samaritan who has eyes to see the person who's been robbed and laying on the, on the side of the street. We need to have that compassion, the willingness to break our own bank and put down some money and say, take care of this person, and I will come back, and I will make things right again. And I think the Samaritan is the hero in this story because he's the one who's living out the mission, the mission that God has for us. 
like I said in one of the earlier times I was sharing with you, that God has been on a mission since the beginning of creation. That God has a mission. And God's mission is not the church. The church is a tool in God's mission. Here's a great quote by uh, Henry Bosch, a South African missiologist. It's not the church which undertakes the mission. It is the mission of God which, un- which con- constitutes the church. Let me read that again. It is not the church which undertakes mission. It is mission, the mission of God, which constitutes the church. It's the mission of God that gives us purpose, to say it succinctly. It's the mission of God that calls us. It's the mission of God that gives us our marching orders, that gives us our life, that gives us the eyes to see and and the drumbeat to walk. You and I are are part of this, this church, this church universal. We are all called to be on this mission. And we're given the gifts of God because we're his children again and that we, he is not going to leave us. Matthew 28, go, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I will be with you until the end of the age. Jesus has given us all that we need. So again, do we have a big, big problem? Because all these statistics say that we're going to hell in a handbasket? Or do we have an opportunity to step forward and live as a mission, as missionaries? <clears throat> when I think of, uh, of our time together, I think of, of the how of, of, of living this way. The how of the art of spiritual conversations. That when we live into that ability to notice, to pray, to listen to people, when we take that posture into our world, that God is going to bring out people that we can start to have relationships with, that we can begin to ask them questions, that we can love on them, show them hospitality, that we can come alongside them and say, you know, there's something more. Providing space for them to discover, discover who Jesus is. When I think of, of spiritual conversations, it's, it's easy to just stand next to somebody in a soup line and, and help those who are less fortunate, but also doing it in partnership with others. And in some ways, you're, you're being on mission in two different directions. And that when, when people are, are experiencing life next to you and they see the hope of Christ in you, they ask. They ask you and they, they want to know, what is different about you? There's something different. And you're able to share. Share that, that love of Jesus. I mean, think about it. We sang songs about it. Of Jesus, who died on the cross his arms stretched out in pain for the sins of the world. And the ultimate sacrifice between the Father and the Son, you know, all, 
all of life right there, the darkness, the complete darkness right there at the cross, the, the ripping of the curtain between the, the holy of holies and the ordinary world. That in that moment when Jesus breathed his last and gave his last breath, that heaven and earth came down in such a powerful way that all evil was going to be extinguished right there. And that three days later, three days later, when in the Jewish mind, one is fully dead, fully dead, there's this new resurrected Jesus appearing to women, appearing to his disciples, saying to them, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Three times he said that. Don't be afraid. There's going to be one who's going to come after me. So like a wind, it's going to give you power. So don't be afraid. You're on mission. Jesus has come into our lives, the resurrected Jesus, and he's saying, don't be afraid. The Holy Spirit is here and is ready to breathe on you and give you that life and the power to do immeasurably more than whatever you can ask or imagine. That is how the world changes. And I think of of those disciples who, who heard and lived with Jesus those three brief years, and they lived this, this Shema story. I was telling Christopher, that's one of the practices that we do as a family with our boys. We say the Shema as we get into our car and we go. It's a Jewish practice where they have those little, those little mitzvot boxes on their, on their door frames. They touch it and they put it on their heart. Some Orthodox will stop and say the prayer. But as we go someplace, we just, we just claim Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Achad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. And as we go out into the world, that that is the, the song, the truth that's going to propel me as I leave my home, to love God and to love my neighbor. And those disciples, as they lived that, I'm sure, with Jesus and saw his, the way he practiced it, that these, these boys and adolescents, these followers of Jesus, who for the majority of them grew up around the Sea of Galilee, this small little fishing area, agricultural area, changed the world. They went to cities like Ephesus, Sardis, Sidon, These cities are like Seattle, New York, Los Angeles. They were the megapolises of the time. Shipping, culture, everything oozed from these cities like Ephesus. And the church grew. And the church grew. And I remember standing in the ruins of Ephesus on this trip, study trip that I was on. And we were outside this Roman villa. It's a house. And in the cement was rubbed into the cement the ichthus sign. 
that little Greek word for fish. And they had identified in the ruins of this house that there were believers living there. And so out of fear of persecution, they, they didn't advertise that they were, they were Christians. They didn't have a cross in their window, but they had this fish, one of the early signs of the church, on their, on their front patio. And so as people came by, they could be like, oh, this is, this is Cole and Priscilla. It's t- they, they're having a house gathering. They're taking care of some of the orphans and the widows. They're going to be at the, the city gate when the slaves are going to be auctioned off and they're going to be buying slaves to set them free. They were loving God with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their mind, and they were loving their neighbors as their self. These disciples discipled others, who discipled others, and the world was changed. That you and I stand here on the shoulders of faith of, of people like that. Centuries, centuries ago. Is that an incredible thought? You can read the story in Hebrews 11. It talks about all these great names of faith. And then it goes into the, the end of Hebrews, that chapter of all these great people of faith, starting from Abraham all the way down. Then it talks about these people who lived in caves, in candle-lit fire in these caves. When persecution came, the Christians went underground. And they didn't come out. And, they're so, and they lived in the caves, and they sang songs. They told stories, the gospel stories, to one another to give each other hope. I remember being in those caves and thinking to myself, because of the sacrifice of these brothers and sisters to who God is, that I stand here in faith. They lived on mission. They loved God with all their heart, soul, and mind, and they loved their neighbor as their self. And we have this opportunity we have this opportunity to love our neighbors. Literally, the person who lives across the street, next to us, behind us, above us, below us, to love our neighbors. Think with me this afternoon, the whole art of neighboring. The exercise from just labeling the people. I mean, just give me some talk back. What was it like when you started writing the names of the people around your house? Were any of you surprised? Surprised that you knew people? How many of you had a few houses you didn't know? How many, how many of you had some houses that you knew really well? Isn't that true? There's these people that live around us that we know really well, and there's others we don't. And that God is providing us these opportunities. This is going to be three years this February that we moved into our house in Maple Leaf. So we lived in Wedgwood on 92nd and 23rd, and we skipped over Lake City Way to 95th. So if I stand on top of my hill, I can see the corner of 35th and 95th, and I can almost see one life. Almost. I know it's just right past the, the light. But I'm the non-busy section. We're on 95th um, between 15th and 17th, just above Sacagawea. 
And, you know, it's a God story for those of us who live in Seattle now to own a home in this crazy real estate market. It's, it's nuts. But there's, we're a line of miracles and God provided. And so we had this fixer-upper of a home that was on foreclosure and ready to be sold. And we were able to somehow get it at a, at a value. And uh, we started cutting down trees and remodeling. I think the neighbors thought we were nuts. It might, they might have thought we were just on, like on some sort of drug that just kept us working because it was six months straight. We just, <laughs> Tasmanian devils going on there. But we got to know our neighbors in the process. And, and uh, we got to know Shah and Q, who live across the street. Could know Aaron and Jim who live on the other side of us. And there's uh, um, a new family, Alex and Angela, who just moved in. It's the third family that just moved in in the two years, having a young child. Then there's Helen, who lives down below us. She's a single woman who dog sits for her job. And then we have Aaron and Christine, who live behind us, who just moved in a few years ago. She was pregnant, and they're moving in, and, you know, uh, your women, if you can imagine moving into a house, and our houses are on this steep hill. Their car wouldn't start, so they were trying to push start it. They had a, a stick. And she's like eight and a half months pregnant, driving. The, they're pushing the car down. <laughs> we're helping. It was, you know, they're moving in. And we're getting to know each other. You know, I, I was having my roof redone, and one of my neighbors came over and, and found out that he did, did the roof prior. And uh, I said, well, there's nothing wrong with the roof. I just didn't know how old it was. And so we're getting a new one put on. And he totally said, hey, you know what? We, we, why, before they do it, we should redo your chimney stack, the metal tubing from your furnace. And so we spent a Saturday together working on that. Shah, who is across the street from me, has uh, um, the mouth of a sailor, and we go golfing together. And uh, he's like, so what do you do? You're some one of those religious people, right? And so we start having conversations about religion. He's uh, Indian in his nationality, born and raised in Kenya, and uh, has come to the United States in a different direction. But there's a whole new world when you start to understand the British crown in India. But we begin to have these spiritual conversations crack open a beer during the summer. We're getting to know each other. And I think of you and where you live and that it doesn't take a lot for us to, to know our neighbor, to walk across the street, say, hey, what are you doing? Want to come over and watch the Seahawks? Or, hey, I noticed that you have a lot of leaves and I'm going to be raking mine up. Can I come and you want to help? You want to do this project together? Or, you know, there's you can be creative and, and thinking of all the different ways to get to know your neighbor and to help your neighbor out. And having, and having questions to ask while you're having those conversations. Getting to know their story. Like, how long have they lived in that house? Where did they live before? And I, I think of, you know, these, these ideas, this art of spiritual conversation and the art of neighboring. The how. These are the how of which we can live this, live this out live this out, then you and I are called to be missionaries. You know, there's no longer, I think, a pastoral or 
religious leadership that's totally separate from everybody else. That we're all in this together. We're all on this mission. There's not a professional staff, a super Christian with a cape. No, we're no capes involved. We're all superheroes on this. We're all here to encourage each other along on the journey and to keep on keeping on. So if the what is us being on mission, and if the how is stuff like the spiritual conversations and the art of neighboring, I want you I want to take you to the where. I know the where is maybe be somewhat obvious, but for me became real obvious again when I was on a study trip. This is another picture of Israel. And the Via Maris is uh, akin to I-5. It's a superhighway of the ancient world. So you can see where Israel is, and there's the highway. And so to the upper side of that picture, that highway takes you to Babylon. And going down the other direction to the low end of the screen, that's going to take you to Egypt. So Babylon and Egypt, those are the superpowers of the ancient world. Egypt, when you think of Egypt, you've got to think of the Nile. You've got to think of, of wheat, of all the grain. They're the breadbasket. They're Iowa for the ancient world. And Babylon, Babylon was spices. Minerals, they were, they were the access to, you know, that's Iraq now. That's all those mountains in Afghanistan. That's, they're pulling off all that goodness from those mountains and they're shipping it into the ancient world. And it's all going through this highway, the Via Maris, because of the desert and the, the Mediterranean Sea. There, there's only literally one healthy way to travel and it's going to be this highway, the Via Maris. This ancient road is still there. It's been paved over by the Israels, Israelites, modern-day Israel. There's still some ancient paths that go off it. But because of hills and desert, it's the way you go. And what strikes me about this is that when God called Abraham from Babylon, from Ur, so this is Abraham, he's marching out, he and his family, not knowing quite where he's going. It's kind of like the ultimate camp out with no location and he finds himself in Canaan, in Israel. And, you know, things don't work out. He spends some time in Egypt, comes back. And then, you know, the nation of Israel takes hold. Then all of a sudden, they end up going to Egypt for their 400 years of captivity. 400 years, the nation of Israel is in captivity in Egypt. It's longer than the United States has been around. So any memory they have of a nation has been totally wiped out. And so when God calls them out of Egypt to the promised land, he's taken them back to this promised land where the Via Maris is part of, the land of milk and honey. And they take the land. And I believe God chose this land not because it had special gifts as land, but because of its location. It's location, it's location, it's location. It was smack dab in the crossroads of the ancient world. God said to his, his people all along, I want you to be a witness, a blessing, 
a light to the nations. So how is he going to do that? He's going to bring them to where they need to be, right there on the highway, the Via Maris. So when these traders come from Egypt and they, they come from Babylon and they're coming along, who are they going to run into? People who love God with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their might, and they're loving their neighbor as their self. And loving their neighbor as their self. The whole picture that God was, was wanting them to do is to live into shalom, a peaceful nation, a nation that, that loves God and loves each other. And we all know as we read Scripture, that's not how the story went. That shalom never was had in that promised land. But I think that's just an imagery because God's bigger plan was in Christ in, in for us. That it's in who we are. That the land that God has called us to, that our crossroads, that we live on a, on a Via Maris, if you will, here in Seattle. That we live in a place where God is calling us to have influence, to have an impact. And the question is, do we have eyes to see and ears to hear? So I have some questions I want you to think about. Do you want to write these down? You can. Do you want to sit back and just meditate on them? I want you to think of your neighbors. I want you to think of uh, that exercise we did, the spotlight of prayer. I want you to think of the art of spiritual conversation. And I want you to think of this question. Name three missional opportunities that God is placing before you today, tonight. Name three missional opportunities that God has placed before you tonight through this, through this retreat time that we've been together. Thank you for building that up. As that fire comes to life and roars. Think of, these, think of that about your life, coming to, fi- coming to life and roaring with these missional opportunities. The second question is, what steps would you need to take? What steps do you need to take to live into those three missional opportunities? What steps do you need to take? My third question, I'm tightening the screws on you right now. How soon could you act on these ideas? How soon could you act on these ideas? Be gracious to yourself, but challenge yourself. How soon could you act on these ideas?
And lastly, who do you know could partner with you? Who do you know could partner with you? There's two parts to this question. Accountability and partnership. Someone who is there with you. Who could partner with you on this missional opportunity, these three missional opportunities? I have a friend, he writes books, that's how I call him my friend. I don't know him personally, but his name is Bob, Bob Goff. He wrote a book called Love Does. And uh, he tells this story about uh, his Jeep. It's a red Jeep. It's a real manly Jeep. It's got the big tires, the extinguisher, the lift kit. I mean, it probably got the glass back exhaust, and when it starts up, it goes, Vroom! you know, it's, it's a Jeep. Well, Bob is coming home from church on a Sunday, and he's in his Jeep. And then out of the blue, bam, he gets hit by a car. He goes flying out of the Jeep, because he doesn't wear a seatbelt, which isn't really smart. He goes flying out of the Jeep. He tumbles, rolls, scratches, bruises himself. The Jeep flips over. Smoke is coming out of it. And he shakes off his head, and he's like, wow, what a ride. And he goes over to the car that hit him. And inside the car is, is Wanda. Wanda's uh, probably 65-ish, maybe 70. You know, she wasn't quite sure what happened. She's really scared, shaken, white-knuckled on the steering wheel. She rolls down the window. And she's like, sorry, I'm so... And Bob's like, that was awesome! I've never, I've never experienced, that was great. That was like the best roller coaster ride in the world. She's like, are you okay? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just some, you know, if he, if he was like writing this, if I was writing this, he'd be like Mighty Python. It was just like a flesh wound. Nothing's wrong. But Bob just goes on to having fun. He gets checked out by the ambulances, the first responders. His Jeep gets towed away. And, uh, He's a little bumped, a little bruised, but he's okay. His Jeep is totaled. It wasn't worth much, I guess, to the insurance company, so he buys it back. He buys it back from the insurance company. He does some fixing up to it, but it's not quite the same. And the weeks, days after the, after the accident, Wanda, Wanda keeps calling him. You know, the, day, the next day after the accident, uh, hello, is, is this Bob? Yeah, this is Bob, he would say. And then, this is, this is Wanda. Um, oh, Wanda, you're the one who hit me. Y- yeah, I, I, I'm just saying I'm sorry. Are you, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to do that. I'm, are you okay? Is there anything I can do for you? No, no, I'm fine, I'm fine. I'm really fine, it's okay. The next day, Wanda would call again. Bob, this is Wanda. Are you, are you okay? Yeah, Wanda. I'm great. It's okay. You know, this happened for like a week, and as, as uh, Bob tells this story, he finally gets the last call. And he says, Wanda, you don't have to call him anymore. You're off the hook. I'm good. 
In fact, Bob sends her a whole bunch of balloons and flowers to Wanda and says, Wanda, I'm fine. Quit calling me. Maybe we can run into each other another time. <laughs> and then uh, Bob continues to talk about his Jeep, and his Jeep was never the same. It pulled a little to the right. It leaked oil. But it was because of that crash. And he uses this story as, a, as, a, as an analogy for his life of how Jesus came and just crashed into his life and took over him. He goes, I want to be like the Jeep. I want to be like the Jeep. I want to I leak oil. I want to leak Jesus in all that I do. I want to leak, I want to I drive different. I want people to notice that there's something not right about me. That I've been hit by Jesus so hard that my, my world is not going to be the same. And I, and I, think, I think Bob's got it right in this whole Jeepology, this whole... We need, we, need to, we need to leak Jesus. And this is what I, I want to end with that challenge for you, that, that you recall the stories of your life where Jesus crashed in on you and changed your life. Where Jesus grabbed a hold of you and said, you're my child. I'm not going to let go of you. I love you. I want you to be on mission with me. I've called you to be fishers of men and women. So will you fish with me? Will you ooze? Wherever you go, will you, will you exude who I am? I'm going to ask Brian to come up. And we're going to end our time in singing some songs. And just, I want you to enter this time in worship, in in coming to know Jesus, in remembering your story. That we, can, that we can ooze Jesus in our lives. That our neighbors and the people that we come in contact with will want to know what's different.